Welcome to the Dwell Church Sermon Archive. Dwell is a family defined by the love of God and committed to giving it away. Here is this week's message. Uh, hey, this week uh, I actually got to go to the Nuggets game. You know, this is the part of the sermon where I just talk about my life a little bit. Uh, I was surprised, actually. Whoa, did you like that transition? Wasn't that nice? Yeah, smooth, right? Yeah, yeah. No more sunburn for you people on the left. Um, <clears throat> so, I was at the Nuggets game, and I uh, witnessed two-time MVP uh, of the NBA, uh, Nikola Jokic. I have no idea how to say his name correctly. Uh, but I'm not the only one, so I'm just going to lean into it. Now, if you are not a big uh, hoops guy, you know, not much much of a baller, not much into it, you might not know who I'm talking about. And I guarantee you, if you're imagining someone in your mind, it is radically different than this human being that I am talking about. You see, the people who know who I'm talking about are giving the giggles right now because they get it, right? Like, you are picturing a two-time MVP winner. You might be picturing someone shaped roughly like LeBron. LeBron James shaped roughly like uh, Kobe Bryant or something like that, and you could not be further from the truth, all right? Imagine if you took like a Serbian Muppet and you put that head on like an orangutan's arms and like the hips of like a 50-year-old woman or something like that, like that is Nikola Jokic two-time and heading towards three-time MVP winner, we're hoping, right? He is the weirdest shaped human being of all time, right? And I feel like very often he like walks in to accept some award, or maybe he even just shows up at places and people are like, hey man, you're pretty tall. Get this, there's about to be an NBA player that's gonna come in. Wouldn't that be cool to see him? And he's like, sorry, it's me, you know? Actually, when they gave him the award, one of his MVP awards, he was at his ranch in Serbia, and uh, he was hanging out, and uh, all, like, a bunch of people from the organization and some players showed up, and uh, they literally have a video. You can see this on YouTube. Dude comes riding up on, like, one of those, like, horse-drawn buggies, Right? Not because that's what, like, this is what he gets into. It's not like, you know, that's what he has to drive around. And it's like this carriage behind it because he's too big to actually ride on the horse. He has to ride on the carriage behind it. And he's whipping it. And he's like, oh, thanks for the award. Like, he's the strangest guy, strangest human of all time. And yet, somehow, he is, like, crazy, crazy gifted uh, at basketball. I think this probably even works to his advantage in some ways, Right? Like, people are not expecting the Serbian Muppet to be, like, Michael Jordan-level quality, and yet he shows up out of nowhere and just totally destroys. As we'll see in our passage today, Jesus is actually kind of the same. There we go. This is one of those where you, like, read the transition, and you're like, no, this isn't going to be good, but it's, like, written down, so I had to say it, or else I don't know how to get into it. Uh, I'm not saying that he's a Serbian Muppet at all. Uh, He could have been shaped like Jokic. We don't really know, right? Like, you'd think that would have been mentioned, though. I just, I have a hunch. But I could be completely wrong in that. Who knows? Uh, I'm not really sure. But... At the end of the day, something that we do see about Jesus is that he was not the person that people were expecting. If you were listing out, like, who Jesus was supposed to be, who he was supposed to, like, what he was supposed to look like, what he was supposed to do and say and everything like that, he was never that or very seldom that. In fact, there are stories all throughout Scripture that we see where uh, the authors of the Gospels are saying to people, like, so Jesus showed up in this place, but nobody knew who he was because they weren't expecting him to be the person that he was. All the time he was confusing and surprising people that were trying to understand who he was. 
And it's not just outsiders either. It was insiders as well. In fact, there's this really fascinating story, like right before he's about to get hauled off to go on trial and then be taken to the cross, he's hanging out with his disciples, his closest followers. He even had, he had his 12 disciples, and then he had these three that were even closer, and he's hanging out with them. And like Peter is there, and he has been hanging out with Jesus for all of this time, right? He's heard him say all of this stuff. He knows, like, love your neighbor as yourself. He knows turn the other cheek, all this stuff. And these dudes come up to arrest Jesus, and he's and Peter immediately, sword out of nowhere, he's like, you'll never take us alive! And Jesus is like, what are you doing, man? Like, do you even know who I am? Jesus, or Peter cuts a guy's ear off. Jesus immediately heals it. And it shows us that even here at the end, even at the end of Jesus' life, even his closest disciples didn't know who he was. And when I was reading this passage this week, I was thinking a lot about, like, why did the gospel writers put so many passages in here that are just like people didn't know who Jesus was? In fact, this story today doesn't really even assert all that much about Jesus. In fact, if you really wanted to place it in its historical context, what it works out better as is a way of Matthew communicating to people, hey, you heard about John the Baptist, now I'm drawing like this vector to Jesus from him, right? It makes him more historically reliable. So if you had people who are reading this letter that Matthew is composing to share the history of Jesus, they would be able to say, okay, if we have any relation to John the Baptist, if we can verify that he was like an actual person, then now we're tying these stories together. He even places John the Baptist in a certain place and time, putting him in prison where he's writing to G- or not writing but asking his followers to go and talk to Jesus so it makes sense it's sort of like a historical reference but why have this in scripture for us to be able to read today we know that God had intentions and plans for scripture we knew that uh, he wrote this not just for people living in the first century but also for us today why are there this and so many other examples of people not understanding who Jesus is and him explaining it I believe it's something, a simple idea that we need to recognize in our own lives probably every single day, something that we need to know, something that we're going to progressively know more and more and more and more throughout our lives as we continue following Jesus. And that is simply this, that Jesus in heaven is better than the Jesus in your head. The Jesus in heaven is better than the Jesus in your head. You see, because I believe, just like people who are living in the first century and seeing Jesus right in front of them, I believe that we have a temptation to replace the actual Jesus with our expectation of Jesus. And because if you're anything like me, a feeble uh, human being, our temptation is to prefer the Jesus that exists in our head, in our mind, that we've probably made up, than to actually confront ourselves with the real and true Jesus. Before we move on to actually talking about the expectations that people had and the relationship that that uh, has to the actual Jesus, I want us to recognize something that was at the end of our passage today. I kind of just want to hit it very quickly so that we understand the gravity of what happens when we miss Jesus. Those who miss Jesus actually pay a dear price for that. Let's recognize that for ourselves. Let's recognize that for our friends who don't know Jesus. You have someone in your life who doesn't yet know about the good news of Jesus. This is what it costs 
Verse 20, it says, Then he began to denounce the cities where most his mighty works had been done, because they did not repent. And then what follows, as you can see, is he goes through all of these other cities and he talks about what happens to them, right? And he compares them to other wicked cities uh, that we see throughout Scripture. And he says, hey, it is going to go really poorly for you if you hear my words and you don't actually understand them or you don't accept me because you're expecting someone else. He says, woe to you, Chorazan. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For the mighty, if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained to this day. But I tell you, it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. If you know the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, then you know that this is an incredibly harsh burn from Jesus. In fact, if you don't know anything about Sodom and Gomorrah, you probably just know that they were bad places, right? Like it has like a a place in our cultural memory, even without any biblical knowledge of just how bad and wicked these cities are. And Jesus says, for those of you who were expecting someone else and I showed up and said, hey, I'm the Messiah and you completely missed out out on me, it is going to be worse for you than it is, was for Sodom. Jesus is saying, for those who hear his words and miss him, for those who love the Jesus of their heads better than the real one, the consequences are actually quite dire. So what I want to do is actually jump into some three, or three expectations that were had of Jesus or his messenger, John the Baptist. And highlight the way that that probably, even to us today, uh, can get in our way of understanding and appreciating the real and true Jesus. And what I want you to do is not just be like, oh, okay, yeah, that's interesting. Those people back then, they were dumb. Man, if I was standing in front of Jesus, I would know exactly who it was. There's a real temptation with that, with reading scripture at any point. What I would rather instead to do is invite you to come along with me and ask ourselves, what expectations do I have of Jesus? If I was able to paint a picture and really make notes of this Jesus that exists in my head, would it actually match up with the Jesus of heaven? And what I want to encourage and challenge you in is that the answer to that question is probably no. But walking into it with that expectation of yourself is the only way that we're ever going to be open and receptive to actually meeting the real Jesus. So Jesus, please meet us here in this today. First, John didn't expect a real personal Savior, which is interesting. Even John, if you don't know about John, this is John the Baptist that we're talking about, not John that wrote the fourth book of the Bible, or the New Testament. Uh, This is John, also Jesus' cousin. Uh, They were introduced in the womb. We don't really know what happened between the womb and about year 30. Uh, Maybe they were friends, maybe they weren't, but even he wasn't quite sure who he was. Just crazy because his last name was the Baptist for crying out loud, and even he did not get that was a joke. I heard like a little chuckle there, uh, not actually his last name. I know, shocking and sad. But even he did not understand who Jesus was. Verse 2 Now, when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples, that's right, John had disciples, and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? Now, John was asking a simple question here, and I don't want you to write this off on, a, uh, on this whole like, big idea uh, that John was like doubting Jesus. I don't think that was really the case here, per se. I think he was just asking. 
But the reason why he was asking, or, or sort of the cause of his confusion, is something that we have to ask ourselves. Why did John not immediately recognize who Jesus was in this moment? And what we have here is a little bit of a gap of time between when Jesus was baptized by John. John got to see the Holy Spirit descend on Jesus in the form of a dove. Uh, John got to see, like, you know, this whole sort of, like, uh, anointing kind of symbolically of Jesus at his baptism. And then we have a block of time here, and now John is in prison, and he's looking back at Jesus, and he's saying, like, hey, are you the one? Are you the guy? Like, I thought you were. I think John's motivation here if we can make some assumption, is that he was probably a lot like the people around him. The people that were actually looking for a Messiah, the people that were looking for Jesus, they were looking for two things. They were either looking for a royal Messiah, someone to be born or brought into the traditional power structures of the day, so maybe he could be a king, who could by decree bring about the kingdom of God and just say, I'm in charge now, now this is the kingdom of God. That is what the people of God were actually waiting for and looking for. Or they were looking for a powerful warrior, someone who might by force and might defeat the Romans and bring about the kingdom of God that way. And if you know the stories of Jesus, then you know that he was neither of those things. That he achieved the desired results another way, which is the way that Jesus answers John. He says, hey, all that kingdom stuff that you're waiting for, I'm actually achieving it in a completely different way. Let's see what he says in verse 4. And Jesus answered them, go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear. And the dead are raised up and the poor have the good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. John and others of Israel were looking for the kingdom to come about, but Jesus didn't bring it in the way that they were expecting, and so they were at risk of missing out. Jesus justifies himself by showing the results of his work. He was saying the kingdom of God was coming, but not coming in some sort of grand, conquering the world kind of way, but coming through individuals. Look at all of those things that Jesus says here. They're talking about things that happen between one person and another person. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk. These are individual miracles. Lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up. Individual miracles. The poor have the good news preached to them. Even that is a one-to-one kind of person. This is right after Jesus sent out his disciples, right? Jesus is saying the kingdom of God is coming in miraculous ways, but it is coming to individuals. I think very often in our own lives, we think we want a Jesus who like runs for president and then can like fix the tax code or something like that. Like we think that's what we want. Like everything would be better if Jesus was just president, right? He would be able to solve, you know, immigration while passing legislation that we want. But the reality is, if you place yourself in this context and even just think like, man, if you've ever had someone close to you who's died and you were asked if you would rather have them back or you would rather have someone who could repeal Amendment 207B or something like that, like you would choose having them back in a heartbeat. And that's exactly what Jesus was doing. If you were a person with leprosy, I imagine you didn't really care who was king at the time. That's what Jesus was talking about here. Which tells us something about Jesus, because he could have been Caesar if he wanted to. Let that sink in for a moment. It would have been an easier and simpler path if he had just made himself king of everyone that existed at the time. Sits down on his throne, tells people what to do, he punishes people that do bad, rewards people that do good. 
That's not the way of Jesus. Jesus was relational, person to person, not society-wide. He chose individual miracles and a death on a cross over power and strength. He chose people. He chose healing their bodies, but even more, forgiving them of their sins and healing their souls that they might have eternal life with him. And then the strangest thing happens. After he dies, uh, raises from the dead, goes into heaven, then he sends out his people to go and do the same. The Christianity might be a movement of person to person, a personal relationship movement that crosses the entire globe and all throughout history. I think... What this tells us is that when we get that feeling that wells up inside of ourselves, like, you know, there's some of us, I think, or even all of us probably at some time or another in our lives, where we get this desire to see Jesus become Caesar, right? We're like, God, if you would just come back, whip up on these bad people, make everything right again. Like, if you would just do that for us right now, God, we need you to do that. We need you to fight our battles for us. We need you to be in charge. When we get that feeling... Or we want Jesus to step in, show people the error of, our, of their ways, defend the church, stand up for what is right, and take care of the bad guys. I think in some ways Jesus is saying to us, I already did. On the cross, I took care of it once and for all. Bad guys just like you and just like me. I died for their sins just like yours. And now, our job as we await the one day returning of Jesus to continue to share this good news, continue to do this kingdom building person to person in exactly the same way that he did. Next up, Jesus, or people did not expect Jesus' messenger. Jesus pretty immediately after this reminds his crowd that they didn't expect John either. Verse 7 says, as they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. Why, or what did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. Jesus says, were you looking for someone who's easily blown away by the winds of change? That's not John. He's not a reed blown by the wind. Were you looking for someone in fancy and fancy clothes and nice dress? Those dudes live in palaces. They are not prophets. Then he goes on in verse 9 to say, What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes. And I tell you, I tell you, and more than a prophet. See, Jesus here was justifying because John was by all accounts a weird dude. There's really no other way to look at it. He wore camel hair shirts and he ate locust and honey. He was strange. And apparently, what this should tell us is it was a not too pleasant experience to be a prophet, right? Like, do you think this was the life that John chose for himself? I feel like in a weird modern-day equivalent, it'd be like, uh, you know, he had to fight to get here or something like that, and that's not at all the case. Like, John didn't get to be John the Baptist because he made some lucrative deals young in life in the real estate market or something like that. No, this dude is kind of like a crazy guy, and a crazy guy for God. William James was actually a uh, philosopher... Uh, probably not necessarily a Christian guy, but yet he wrote wrote about uh, people who were like religious people. He wrote this book called The Varieties of Religious Experience, and he tracked a bunch of different people who had religious religious experiences of all different kinds, and he broke them down into these kind of two categories in some ways, sick-souled and healthy-souled people. And he said that for healthy-souled people, following Jesus or or taking part in religion in general uh, was something that would actually help them to sort of live a stable 
and healthier life in some ways. And for other people, uh, sick-souled individuals, as he called them, for some of them following God was actually a difficult and torturing, torturous affair. For some, he observed, following Jesus was a challenging and trying thing. It hurts more than it consoles. And this had to be true of John the Baptist. I mean, we're not very far off in this story right now from when he gets beheaded just to please, you know, the ruler's daughter or the ruler's wife. He was separated from society. He lived uncomfortably, and he was imprisoned until he was beheaded. And Jesus seems to think that this was actually par for the course. He's like, yeah, he wasn't comfortable. Yeah, he lived out of society. Yeah, he didn't wear nice clothes. That's what a prophet does. In verse 10, he says, this, uh, this is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. Truly, I say to you, among those born of women, there is arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, and if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears, let him hear. This very uncomfy lifestyle is what made John the Baptist who he was supposed to be, and he didn't shy away from it. He walked into it willingly. And what Jesus says here is that he is the least in the kingdom of heaven. And I think in some ways what Jesus is trying to say here and trying to recognize is that John was the last of the Old Testament prophets in a lot of ways. So remember, we're living in this kind of in-between time. We think of like the Gospels as the New Testament uh, and everything before that as the Old Testament. But really what Jesus is saying is like he is the representative archetype of an Old Testament prophet. That there was a time when there were lots and lots of people throughout all of the Old Testament who were speaking about a coming Messiah, that one day Jesus was going to come, and John is the very last of those. I think that's indeed why they call him the greatest, right? Like Jesus was saying, no one has been born greater than John the Baptist, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. And I believe that is because John was the last person to be pointing towards the kingdom of heaven, but to not actually be able to fully embrace and understand it. We know that John dies before Jesus actually dies on the cross. So he is the last one to say, hey, there is a guy coming, and he is going to kickstart the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. There's a guy who is on his way, and he announces the way of Jesus for him to come, but doesn't actually get to see it come to fruition. He doesn't get to see Jesus die and then come back from the grave. In some ways, what Jesus is saying here is, for though John is the greatest now, he is actually going to be jealous of people who get to see the kingdom of God come to full fruition. Both the author of Hebrews and Paul in the book of Romans shows us that this is, in fact, the case. They also show us the ways in which these Old Testament heroes and figures get brought into the kingdom of God later on, but they don't get to see it begin. We have the benefit now, living after John the Baptist and after the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, Knowing the true story, knowing the full story. We have something that even John did not have. Jesus' point here is that as great as John is, his life isn't as great as someone who knows, understands, and accepts this kingdom. So what's the lesson for us? 
I think the lesson is very simple. When Jesus is talking about John and the way in which his life looked, that you weren't looking for a man with nice clothing, you weren't looking for a man who fit in with the rest of society, that maybe we probably shouldn't expect the messengers of Jesus to appear as successful people in the world's eyes. Right? Like John was just a failure and a weird dude all the way around. So why in the world would we expect for followers of Jesus to look the same. Similarly, as messengers of Jesus ourselves, we probably should not work really hard to appear successful in the world's eyes. I have this weird holdover from like the earliest American days that to be a successful Christian means that you would be a successful businessman or woman. Now, the truth behind that is probably that being honest and wise and hardworking, which are all parts of the Christian faith, would in turn make you a good worker, Right? And that would hopefully end up leading to a place where you are successful. But what's interesting about John and other people that we see in Scripture, especially surprising characters like this, is that John wasn't even aiming at that. Maybe John could have made a good accountant, but that wasn't his target. He wasn't freed up to be a prophet because he had made some good investments in the real estate market. No, this wasn't what he was aiming for. You don't eat bugs because you worked hard to earn that privilege. Something that we need to wrap our minds around and tear down our expectations of is that being successful in life, in the world's eyes, does not make you a good Christian. And sometimes being a good Christian may mean that you are never successful in the world's eyes. And if on your way to being a good follower of Jesus and doing what he says, you end up successful, all the better. But that has to come second. If we want to count ourselves among the messengers of Jesus in the same way that John the Baptist is, then we have to give up our idea that that in turn would make us wealthy, that that in turn would make us accepted by society, that that in turn would make us appear to be successful. Finally, people didn't expect that Jesus would be feasting. I tried to say people didn't expect that Jesus would be fun, but they told me to take that out because uh, I don't want to you know, make it sound like the only way to have fun is to be eating and drinking, but that's what Jesus was doing. So, Jesus, uh, people did not expect that Jesus would be feasting. Verse 16 says, But to what shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their playmates, We played a flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not mourn. This was evidently a popular children's game of the time. Uh, it's since fallen out of fashion. I've never seen any kids playing this. Uh, I've never heard this on the playground. I think the general idea, this is actually an interesting thing. Like it's, it's interesting in the fact that nobody knows about it, but it's not interesting in the fact that like anyone should put any time into it, I think. Like it's like a weird thing that scholars are like, yeah, we're not really sure. But I think the general idea is they were pretending that it was a wedding in one voice. That's the we played the flute for you. Uh, and then they were pretending that it was a funeral in the next voice. We sang a dirge for you, right? Uh, they didn't have a lot of cool events. They didn't have TV back then, I think, so, you know, weddings and funerals were like a big deal. So I think the game was kind of like a first century red light, green light kind of situation, right? They're like, you're getting married, and they're like, you know, you make me want to shout. And they're kind of like living it up, right? And then they're like, your mom just died. And they're like, oh. Like, I think that's kind of like how the game went, and the kids would kind of act it out, you know? 
It's dark. Things were dark back then, okay? Like, without TV, this is the type of games that they had to play, and uh, it wasn't great. Now, I think that's enough for context there. I won't camp out that too, too much more. It makes enough sense, at least, for this parallel here. Verse 18. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon. The Son of Man, Jesus, came eating and drinking, and they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners, yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. Jesus is comparing John and himself and pointing out that the people's expectations of them would make it to where they are not happy either way. Notice here he's not justifying either as the best and only choice. So whether you are anti-fasting or anti-feasting, Jesus is coming for your expectations in this moment. He's saying that people would miss the good news either way. And it would seem that in Jesus' unfolding kingdom that there's actually a time and a place for both. There's actually another uh, example of when John's disciples were interacting with Jesus in Mark 2, 18 through 20. It says this, Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them. And then they will fast in that day. Two quick observations as we close. First, you should know that Jesus liked to get down with the tax collectors and sinners. So much that people called him a glutton and a drunkard. That's kind of the facts of the case. That apparently Jesus was hanging out so much with these people that you weren't supposed to hang out with. And he was at least peripherally around whatever it was that they were doing. The people assumed that he was actually sinning in what he was doing. He was being a glutton, being a drunkard. And we can assume, perhaps, that Jesus was not overeating and overdrinking. But to those who did not understand him and his mission, it may appear so. It was more about who he was with than anything. Tax collectors and sinners was kind of a first century easy shorthand for like the type of people you don't want to be around. The people you shouldn't be around if you're a good Jew. And in fact, this is exactly the type of people that Jesus came to be around. This is, there are numerous examples of this throughout the Gospels. And since it isn't the main thrust of this passage, I'm not going to camp out here for too long. I just want to say that to be with sinners, Jesus risked and even forfeited his reputation. He was so willing to be close to those that sinned that it appeared that he was sinning himself. This should tell us, first, that feasting is not necessarily a bad thing. Jesus was in favor of feasting and celebrating and hanging out with his friends. And feasting to be near to sinners, those who are far from God, those who are rejected by society, is a good and honorable thing to do. Second, fasting is also good at times. That passage that I read from Mark, where Jesus asks, can the wedding guests fast as long as the bridegroom is with them, should call us to question whether or not the bridegroom is with us. This is why uh, here at Dwell Church we celebrate a very light and a very self-guided uh, form of the liturgical calendar. 
Uh, we're not all that serious about it. I'm sorry for those of you who wish we were more serious, and I'm sorry for those of you who wish we were a lot less serious about it. One of the few things that we actually celebrate here at Dwell is called Lent, and it actually begins this very Wednesday. Um, Ash Wednesday is coming up this week. This is when we begin our Lenten fast as a church, and we do this to observe exactly what Jesus was talking about in this passage. You see, because if you just sort of like go through your daily life, it's difficult to experience what Jesus is talking about here. It's difficult to actually submit your mind to a moment like this, that for a while Jesus was with the disciples, and they were hanging out and they were feasting, and then he died, and in that moment, then they were mourning. I imagine what Jesus is hinting at here is not even just after he died, like the three days in between when he died and was resurrected. I think what Jesus is actually talking about here is the sadness that would have been present in the rest of the disciples' life, that even though they had the Holy Spirit with them, even though they were empowered by Jesus to do his mission, they still were broken over the losing of their close friend. Every year during this season, we take an intentional Uh, I think it's like 47 days to celebrate and to acknowledge the death, the pain, and the removal of Jesus from our lives. That to actually forgive us of our sins, Jesus had to die on a cross. And very often we're celebrating the forgiveness of that, we're celebrating the joy of the resurrection, but very seldom do we allow ourselves to fully embrace the pain and the hardship and the difficulty of his death. Lent is an extended period of acknowledging the death of Jesus for our sins. It is the dark night of the crucifixion before the sunrise of Easter. And the idea of fasting is a way of removing something from your life so that you might be able to focus and think more on Jesus and his sacrifice for you. A good way that I've heard it said before is you're fasting from something so that you might feast on God. And the idea here that we're actually thinking through as a community, as a family this year, is the idea of refinement. That in taking something away from yourself, that your desires will be laid bare and purified. If you've ever fasted before, you'd know that one of the highlight or one of the major things is not some sort of like magical transformation when you're like, oh, I gave up chocolate and so Jesus gave me $10. Like that's not what happens when you fast, right? It's not some sort of like give one, get one kind of situation. But what happens is when you give something up, it actually exposes who you are, what you love and what you desire. We fast as a form of refinement that those desires might be laid bare and purified. That in taking away something we desire, it might reveal to us what we truly desire in life. So Lent begins this Wednesday. We actually have these uh, nifty-difty little cards right here. Uh, You might need a magnifying glass to read them, but also you can keep it with you at all times, which is pretty cool. Uh, And right here on the back, we ask a simple question, and the idea is that you would write what you're giving up for Lent, or your sort of plan for Lent, right here in this thing. It's very, very self-led. You can sort of guide yourself on this. Uh, If you're a part of one of our groups, we might be talking about them this week, and so you have an opportunity to discuss this with others. I wanted to just give you a few tips before we begin, and then I'll wrap up. First, don't choose a sin in your life. 
you should probably be getting rid of that anyway. There's a real temptation to be like, hey, I do this thing all the time, and Lent sounds like a good time to get rid of it. Well, that is true. That might be a good thing for you to do, but really this is something uh, that's not necessarily directed at getting rid of bad things in your life, but it's actually getting rid of something that you love, which is sort of my second tip. Choose something that you love. Choose something that you know that you desire that may not even be a bad thing. Maybe having your phone or social media is not necessarily a terrible thing. Giving it up for Lent is going to reveal to you the ways in which you rely on it. Eating food is not a bad thing, but giving it up is going to show you the way in which you hang a lot of your emotional and personal well-being on something like that. Next, I would invite you to choose something doable. One of the worst things that you can do is choose something like, oh, I'm not going to, you know, eat sugar for this entire time and then be like, oh, but near the end of the thing, I had this trip planned to Willy Wonka's Chocolate Factory or something like that. I don't know if that's a thing that would happen, but like, don't set it up for that. You need to actually think through, hey, what is something that I can give up for this amount of time? Because millions of Christians throughout the year, throughout the centuries that have celebrated Lent, which is actually one of our oldest Christian traditions, there's uh, evidence dating back to the early hundreds, like uh, as far back as like 300 AD about Lent. In fact, St. Augustine wrote about Lent, which means they were celebrating it all the way back then. Millions of Christians who have experienced Lent through the years have come to see that this specific amount of time does something strange to you. And if you've read books about habits and things like that, then you know that there's actually like neuroscience that backs this up. That 47, amount, or 47 days is actually plenty of time to institute a brand new habit into your life. Something different happens every stage of the time. If you've done Lent before, then you know there's sort of like the first week difficulty and the second week and you're like thinking like, oh, this isn't so bad, I can do this. And the third week, you're really getting exposed and laid bare and I don't want to spoil any of it for you, but you know what I mean, right? Uh, weird things happen to you throughout the time of Lent. And so pick something that you can do through the entire time. The final thing that I would encourage you on is to tell someone about it. If you're just doing this completely alone and by yourself, there's a temptation to lose focus and to lose steam. There's also a temptation to not really take hold of what you are learning and what you're experiencing from God. So take an opportunity through this time. Meet up with a friend. Have a serious conversation. Talk to people in your group about what you're giving up so that you might both collectively learn from the ways in which God is showing you things during this time. My prayer, <clears throat> my hope for you and for me, is that as a community, this Lenten season would reveal in us the Jesus in our head, the way that we have built him up to be someone that he is not, who better suits our needs and our desires, and that exposing and refining our desires, we might actually get a clearer picture of the actual Jesus who is in heaven. Thanks for listening. We hope it brought you closer to Jesus and more in touch with the world around you. Being a Christian in today's culture can be hard, Fortunately, he gives us the gift of community through his church, so we would love to invite you to join us for one of our Sunday morning gatherings or for one of our weekly small groups. All the details you need can be found on our website, dwelldenver.org.